Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. Are you passionate about films, interested in cultural diversity or wanting to get exposure for your own film? The Indonesian Film Festival is just around the corner with our main events running from March the 23rd to April the 10th. There'll be free film screenings, panel discussions and for filmmakers, there's the short film competition. This year's theme is The Unknown and film submissions close on the 3rd of March. What are you waiting for? Go and check it out. The Indonesian Film Festival, iwfaustralia.com, a 3CR supporter. Okay, so we've got uh, Nick. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Yes, good morning. Yes, here we are again. And thank you very much to the very nice listener who rang me up earlier to wish me luck on the program today. Did you know that we've got a listener out there who waits for us to start the program? No, that's, that's very, very nice. lovely. That's what My I thought My dad too. was also awake this morning before I left, so hopefully he'll be listening. <laughs> yeah, so we know we're at least... Uh, Two listeners. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it's a, we've got lots of things to talk about today. We're yeah. hoping that we're going to be able to give you a catch-up on Venezuela because there was uh, a, a group of people who just come back uh, and uh, Joe M- Montero from the MEAA was one of the group of people who went there and he's just come back and he's supposed to be coming in and having a chat to us about uh, what's going on. We're uh, going to follow up what we had on last week with uh, Virginia Eubank, uh, whose uh, book, uh, Automating Inequality, uh, is such a great read and she's such a great speaker i'm desperate to read it yeah i'm trying to find it like i think 
Even it, maybe people that listen to this show have gone out straight away and like borrowed it from, or maybe people that were at the event yeah, borrowed it from all the libraries because I've checked and it's like already on loan, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's it, it, it's all coming to to you right now, actually, because of the uh, announcements that uh, the uh, LNP government have put up. Uh, to changes to job job active, uh, they reckon that they're going to uh, increase the uh, efficiency of the system uh, by uh, increasing automa- automation. It's completely mm. out of the uh, 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 book that um, uh, Virginia Eubank has been describing as uh, basically failed experiments, really, in America in terms of failed if if it was supposed to actually support and be inclusive, uh, not failed if you have got, you're a, <laughs> you're a, a fascist state, effectively. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, it's important for everybody to be aware of what this all means. It's not a simple thing, and it's uh, having really dreadful effects on people. Uh, robo uh, debt uh, was an example of how horrendous this uh, automation is. And in yeah. fact, it's really interesting to me, this whole idea of government services uh, being run through uh, um, uh, the Automated internet. Systems. No, no, but the internet. Yes. So, for example, just personally, uh, I'm waiting for my um, letter from Vic Roads about my... A car license. I don't yeah. drive very much, but I've got a car license, yes. and it's really fascinating to me that uh, I've looked it up. I, I know that it's almost it's it just about to uh, lapse, lapse yeah. and I'm waiting because I want to be able to renew it. Yes, they tell me online yeah, that yeah. the system is that they send me a reminder and then tell tell me what I'm supposed to do and if there's mo- what money I have to yeah. pay and all the rest of it, and then it says that it takes two weeks for it to to come to you. Now, the thing about it is is that it's less than two weeks now yeah, that right. I've got to go, but it ha- fails to tell me what phone number I can ring. I have to actually then uh, trawl the yeah, internet. Yeah, you have to find Yeah, I yourself. have to find the number, and then I also have to try and find a location for, for an actual physical site so that mm. I can actually go there and talk to them. Yeah. But um, – the same thing happened like it's a few bizarre. years ago when they moved from, you know how they used to have stickers uh, for the registration on your cars? Yeah. And they moved to, away from that to like now it's no stickers. You that's just, right. And they, instead of sending the letters, because pe- that used to be people's reminder that you get right. a letter with a sticker on it and then you'd be like, okay, I've got to pay my rego. Yeah. But they stopped doing that and just automated it. And then nobody knew that their registration, like so many people got fined and it's like a $900 fine if you're not registered. It's just extraordinary. Because they didn't know and they didn't realise that they hadn't paid their rego because they were waiting for their letter and they never got it. So It's quite bizarre. (laughs) And and we're talking about uh, like – and talking to a person that I know right now, just yesterday – the business about job active. Yeah. She she'd been waiting for what she was supposed to do 
and didn't know that she she couldn't fight. She didn't know that she was supposed to go and see somebody. Yeah. And then she discovered when she goes and talks to them, she discovers she's been thrown off the system. Yeah. Because she didn't know that. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. they've made a mistake. Yeah. Well, what what happens to me in the last few weeks is uh, because I've been on New Start for six months yeah. and haven't been able to. Like haven't been successful in finding a job. Now they've upped the ante, and I have to go into the uh, the job seeker place. Like I had to go in three times last week. Well, there uh, you go. And and they put all the appointments on this job active thing, and it's the responsibility of the job. Uh, provider Fighter, yeah. to like tick off on their system that I've been to the meeting. Yes. And if I don't go, it comes up red and like, you know, um, goes into the job active as if like, I, you know. You're a bad I'm, person. Yeah, yeah. I didn't go to the meeting so that's like going against me, right? But actually I did attend all my meetings but uh, even later in the day after I'd already been to the place, I, I was on job active and it was red as if like, and like urgent, you haven't been to this, you haven't attended your meeting, but I had attended the meeting. It's so I can disturbing. imagine how that would stress people out. Well, you know? well there's no, there's, the point is that there's, it's, there's no accountability and you have no uh, pushback. It, 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 it's a system straight out of Frank, Franz Kafka. It's out yeah. of, it's it's a Kafkaesque system, mm. which people should be fighting with all their might. That's all I can say. Anyway, we're going to follow that up. We're going to we're going to follow up the uh, things that uh, we were talking about last week, but with the panel, a little bit of the panel discussion that came after the major speech that Virginia Eubanks gave, um, so that uh, we can get a little bit of an idea of the situation here at the moment. Uh, anyway, before we do, though, um, let's uh, hear from some important announcements that are on our list, except that, of course, I can't find anything on this thing. We, we might go to a, a track instead. She is my life and she never knows She got a boy, won't tell him no Nobody else, she don't ever show Won't tell him no. Nobody else. He don't ever show. Did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. 
And yes, we're back. And we've got Joe Montero on the line. G'day, Joe. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Good. Um, you've just come back from Venezuela, haven't you? I have. I, I've been back nearly a week. Yeah, well, that's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose in, in Venezuelan yeah, terms, yeah. that is a long time. Yeah. Can you give us an idea of uh, why you went there and uh, where did you turn up? Where did you uh, first arrive? Well, uh, I arrived there around the, gosh, trying to remember, around about the 6th of uh, the month. And uh, the uh, purpose to go there was part of a three-person uh, delegation uh, that went there primarily to uh, on a fact-finding mission to really get the story of what's really going on in Venezuela in the wake of uh, Guaido's uh, self-declaration, declaration, I should say, as the new president, which, of course, uh, he was backed immediately by Donald Trump. Uh, what was that? Did you... Is the general impression that uh, Guido did this off his own bat or that he was already supported yeah, by the Americans? Oh, look, there's absolutely no doubt that he was already supported. I mean, he, he does have a background. He was uh, involved uh, a few years back when he was a little bit younger in a program uh, around organising communities based at uh, Washington State University. And he was also an operative uh, in Serbia when there was a crisis there. Oh, really? That's fascinating. Um, An operative? What does that mean? (laughs) Um, So, uh, um, oh, that's really fascinating. Uh, So it's it's even more murky than than merely being a a right-wing... Uh, well, well, it is because he's a political party, and the name escapes my mind at the moment. Uh, is a, a, a fairly small in Venezuelan context party that declares itself as social democratic, except it's not. And and uh, a few years ago, it actually affiliated to the Socialist International. But it's oh, not, really? And you, uh, uh, yeah, and you can see uh, by what he declared after that the automatic uh, return of the oil to the American companies, which owned it before. But he's all, he also announced at the same time very severe austerity measures in cutting back of, in government services. He railed against the uh, the provision of Maduro and Chavez before him of services, services that in many places taken fairly much for granted. He, he wants to scrap all that. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, uh, of course, everybody should remember uh, that Hitler's party was, of course, the Social Democrats. Yeah, well, well they, <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they use the thing. Now, he, he came up, uh, my understanding, uh, certainly from talking to people there and doing some further investigation, is that he came up because a political vacuum had been created a few years ago uh, where the major, say the two traditional parties, which was the major Social Democrat Party and the official sort of Conservative Party, who actually worked very closely together, and I, and I don't think you should even equate it with the Labor Party in Australia. I mean, it was that in name 
thoroughly corrupted, both of them. Uh, they were connected to the oil industry very solidly. They set up the opposition a few years back uh, to Chavez, originally called the Democratic Roundtable. And they actually withdrew from it because they fractionalised internally and there were certainly disagreements. So in this vacuum, Gaida, who was even a, a mid-ranking person in his own party, was able to find some space uh, to, you know, to get some authority and also to be promoted. So you and your fellows, uh, two two others, uh, arrived in Caracas. Would is that right? We did. We did. We remember we arrived in different days, so we didn't go there together. But yeah, we, we found ourselves in Caracas, and uh, we weren't there too long. Uh, we were we headed out for the frontier uh, with Colombia to have a look at what was going on there. And that's uh, uh, in particular related to uh, mainstream uh, international media around uh, Venezuela refusing, in inverted commas, humanitarian aid. Is that correct? Is that what you're investigating? Uh, yeah, we wanted to investigate that. Plus also, what's the situation? How are people feeling on the ground? And, and it became obvious fairly quickly that... Uh, that uh, people on the ground. It is a stronghold of the governments that area, uh, and it, it is the feeling is strong there. Uh, people uh, there that we came across see themselves as having a role in defending the frontier uh, if there's an invasion. Oh. And hmm. Their view of that crossing was not a bad aid. Uh, and people told us who were actually eyewitness that uh, that it was an attempt to smuggle in armed operatives. Oh, interesting. That is their view. Uh, uh, one person we spoke to said, look, what really happened there is that the local civilian militia that is, uh, you know, in the area closest to there, uh, 500 strong of them are the ones who turned up at the uh, at the bridge and said, "Right, you're not coming in." And they did it. Quite and they well. were locals. They were locals. Oh, they decided. They decided, and one thing that's emerged over the last few years in Venezuela is, yeah, there's a talk about the military, and it's another issue. But Venezuela has within the population an armed militia of around 2 million people. So that's like uh, the um, uh, the local defence force? Uh, it, is, it, it is not a form, it's not an army. They are civilians. They are trained by the army and they're armed by the army, but they're volunteer civilians who say they want to help to defend their nation. Okay. Now, Now, the other thing is that... We, we've become aware that even though that there has been, uh, there was a uh, blackout, electricity went off, that sort of stuff, yeah. uh, and uh, problems with fresh water that um, supply, that actually in a lot of parts of Venezuela, people didn't actually have uh, um, electricity or running water um, no. until very recently. 
No, we, we actually fronted that because when we went, and the border regions called Apure, uh, we arrived at the capital and we were heading out uh, in a car around about five o'clock and it was already starting to dim and the lights suddenly all went out. So, so we were caught up in it. It was huge because it affected around 90% of the country, they're saying. No power, which also meant there were there was there were no communications, no internet, no telephones. There was also no running water in homes, and hospitals, and other places. So it, it was pretty devastating. I mean, we, we had to share in that. We had to, uh, you know, for instance, you know, get used to actually a shower was uh, using a bucket. You know, so so it, it was pretty rough. No, it's uh, like living in the bush here. <laughs> uh, so it was. Now, the understanding immediately there that that was uh, deliberate sabotage uh, of the electricity system, and more evidence has come out since. Uh, even more, another thing's happened, I heard just a few days ago, uh, one of the uh, a major power facility was actually firebombed. Mm. Uh-huh. So they, somebody put in sinewy to the bosses. They went up, and so they're out the power again for a while. So when the power went off, and that's uh, pretty confronting. Did and you obviously, as people, individuals yourself, you had to uh, get used to the situation. Did you get the impression that there was a sense of panic amongst people around you? Or? No, ex- exactly the opposite. Right. Uh, the feeling when we talked to people, they told us that that was probably the purpose to 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 set off panic, to set off anger, and to set off, basically, riots against the government. It didn't work. People were very calm and collected. The, the way they took it is there... That's most people, I'm saying, and people we met on the street say, look, there's been a war waged against this country, so we've got to expect a few things to happen. Hmm. Although this is the worst as far as that sort of thing that they've experienced. But also that... Uh, this is a country that's been used to hardship. I mean, uh, Hugo Chavez won an election in a climate where there was a great deal of repression and, and huge poverty. At that time, 40% of the population were estimated to be living in extreme poverty. So, you know, uh, 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 what they told us is in our, our own lifetimes, we become a bit accustomed to hardship. We can put up with it. So, so you were sent the here there to to collect information. Yes. What did you come back? Who did you come back to tell? What I mean, what what are people here? Um, well, we're, we're doing. Just, um, some people suspected as such. I, I mean, one problem is the opposition has is they've got Donald Trump on their side, and in Australia, Donald Trump is not a uh, a good uh, PR figure. Uh, so there is that. Well, but a... overall, there's <laughs> yeah. an immense amount of confusion in Australia because there's been one narrative that's been heard constantly and constantly, and we come back and say, look, it's not quite like... Well, it's not like that at all. The people are quite, collect, uh, quite uh, you know, not comfortable, but they're, they're dealing with the situation. They're actually... Uh, yeah, they're dealing with the situation and... There are people who oppose the government, but there are also a whole lot of people that actually support the government, and, and that that's not admitted. Uh, the other thing is, 
the food situation is not as we were led to believe. That was one of our major concerns. And actually, the people do have enough to eat. That's not a problem. The problem is that they don't have sufficient medicines and some other necessities. Well, what we consider necessities are a bit hard to get. And there is a problem with the currency. It's hyperinflation. Uh, cash is hard to get. And there is a problem uh, with speculation in some areas where some necessities have been held back and then sold for a really, really high price. So, so this is—is is this about class? This this whole issue of yes, yes. Uh, you, you can see it most clearly in Caracas, and there are sections of Caracas where people, well-to-do people, live, and there are sections where working-class sort of people live. And if you go up the hills, it's it, this is like uh, like uh, in Rio, you have what. Uh, like the favelas there up the mountainside, and they're pretty much very similar. They're the poor people. They live in completely different worlds. They don't. They very rarely cross paths. And you can walk through there and see. You go to the wealthier areas, and it's like you're in a different country. Uh, there's also a huge difference because... Most of the people, middle class or upper middle class, wealthy people, not all, but most of them are of distinct European descent. A a lot of Spaniards, a lot of Italians and Germans moved over there. They're light-skinned. The rest of the population is darker-skinned or of African heritage. So there is... So so they're either Indigenous Indian or... uh um, people who have come, who've been brought there as uh, as workers. Uh, they have. My understanding is some uh, Africans were brought there uh, for the uh, during the slave trade days. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I was going to. Yeah, I wasn't going to jump to the conclusion, but yeah, I assumed yeah. and, that was and, at the heart of it. But a large part, the bulk of the population is is part indigenous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah there are people. There are the tribal in the, in the remote regions. Uh, the indigenous people as well, but. There is this divide, this colour divide as well as class divide. Uh, they're joined together. And there is, uh, you know, I came across, I read stuff there uh, that uh, that talks about, from the wealthy areas, talks about the uncivilised who live in the other parts uh, and we can't let them pull us down because if they get their way, they'll pull us down. And there is a tremendous fear there that uh, that these people, this section of Venezuela society, is losing their economic and social status, and, and they are reacting on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're from the MEAA, um, and, yeah. and uh, are you hoping that uh, uh, some unions, local unions, would be are going to be uh, sort of vocal and supportive of Venezuela? Uh, yes, yes, it will be, and it, and it is starting. It is starting, uh, and I can't say a great deal about some because there's been some talking to them, uh, and it is moving around. They're getting the facts, and they're 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 looking at things, and they're looking at things, and they're looking at at what to do, what how they can participate in some way. One thing, this is what Venezuelans asked us to do, and I should point out our main effort was to talk to people at the 
local level. So we went to communities that were organised. This is a huge thing in Venezuela. They were organising their own affairs. They're taking over uh, the delivery of services and so on. Uh, and this is uh, something like the militias. But uh, And they're a new political power, and it's contentious because the other side really hates that. That is their... That is really what they mean by dictatorship. But they've asked us to help. And we are coming back with, uh, with, with a couple of projects. Good oh, there. Uh, yeah. That's great. That's, that's uh, really good. So, so um, yeah. can, can I just, just briefly mention, one is we were asked to help the, in the uh, finishing off an opening of an agricultural college near the, the border to actually develop, to, to train the, uh, the people working on the land uh, in developing new forms of agriculture and sustainable agriculture. We've also been asked by a number of groups to provide aid, not the kind of aid that uh, was going around uh, through Colombia, but they want medicines, they want power generators, water pumps, those sorts of practical things that actually meet the needs they actually have. So we're actually working that. We're actually talking to the unions, starting to talk to the unions about contributing to this. And we'll go further than the unions as well. That's great. That's great. So uh, how can our listeners mm. uh, connect? Yeah, look, they can connect for that because uh, this delegation was organised by the uh, Venezuela solidarity campaign in melbourne so you can look it up on facebook and so i suppose i'll become a kind of de facto spokesperson so if they can uh get through to me I, I will give my number since everybody seems to know it these days on <laughs> on o double four eight four eight nine two somebody wants to call through wants to help because we do need it uh uh, part of this, uh, actually in a few hours, I'll be flying to Sydney and I'll be uh, addressing uh, a meeting, uh, a report back uh, on uh, at the uh, headquarters of the Maritime Union in Sydney. Okay. Cool. All right. Uh, that, that union's been great. I mean, they're, they're the first one that have, uh, they on their own initiative, actually took up a stand because the Maritime Union have got contacts with people when they work in the industry around yeah. the place. So they've got a sense of what's going on. Uh, I, I should also plug the Electrical Trade Union, uh, but uh, I won't mention some of the others because they're, they're coming along and they're discussing uh, the issue internally at the moment. All right. Thanks very much for giving us an update. Yep. Great. Thanks, mate. <laughs> Thank you.
She is my life, and she never know. She got a boy, won't tell him no. Nobody else, she don't ever show. Did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it. She don't know. And we're back on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, we've got uh, Abigail Lewis on the line. She's from Per Capita. And Per Capita has uh, recently put out a report that uh, looks at uh, the uh, employment situation that we've got or haven't got uh, and how uh, unemployed people are being treated within our system. And uh, hello, Abigail. How are you? Hello, Abigail. Hi, yes, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Great. <laughs> I pressed the button, but it didn't do what it was supposed to do. But oh, anyway, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the morning, the morning. <laughs> but anyway, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us sure. because uh, uh, it's really important what's going on. In We're leading up into a federal election and uh, Per Capita has done uh, an evaluation of uh, what the LMP gov- uh, present government and uh, what the Labor government, uh, potential Labor government yeah. is uh, talking about in the uh, unemployed p- uh, workers' space. Can you talk yeah. to us a little bit about uh, your analysis? Yeah, absolutely. So um, per capita's work on this issue, uh, we, we released a, a big evaluation report last year uh, called Working It Out, where we um, essentially analysed the whole job access system. We interviewed a lot, met, you know, many unemployed workers, and we really brought their lived experience to the fore. Um, and what we found is that the, the job access system, that's the system um, in which unemployed people have to participate to collect um, social security payments, um, is really just not fit for purpose. It's not working. It's damaging. It's highly punitive. Um, and we recommended a lot of... Um, uh, reforms to the system, um, which would would constitute a, a complete overhaul of the system. Now, since that report came out and since there's been pressure um, from the civil society space and from unemployed workers themselves who have done an incredible job uh, lobbying um, for reform in this space, both the LNP and the ALP have announced um, a package, essentially, of reforms to Job Active that they're going to bring into the next election. Um, Now, both of these packages are, you know, tinkering around the edges, really, of the the Job Active system, and and neither reform constitutes the complete overhaul that's required. Um, But I do think it's really promising that we've even reached a point where both major parties feel a need to to go into this election with, um, with a set of reforms. Um, The reason I really wanted to publish the follow-up report was because the coverage in the media was a little misleading in the sense that um, Terry Butler from Labour released um, Labour's platform first, and the headline policy of that was removing the requirement on unemployed workers to apply for 20 jobs each month. Yeah. Um, there was a lot more to the to the package than that, but that was the headline policy. And then when the LNP released their platform um, in quite a neat political trick, that was also the headline policy. So it looked like um, the LNP was announcing what the ALP had announced. You know, it looked like the platforms were comparable. But when I dig deeper, um, I found that they were very different. You know, the, what, what the LNP is, is promising is very, very different from what the ALP is promising. So... That's the, the substance of the report, is looking at those differences. Now, um, 
Yeah, and a lot of that is around the automation or further automating yeah. the system. <clears throat> yeah, so really what, what the LNP is proposing is, is a switch to digital. So a big issue in the job active system is the caseload of job service provider staff. So yeah. um, staff um, average, a, average a caseload of 150 unemployed workers. So and this is all coming out of the Senate committee that's just yes, happened. Yes, yeah. exactly, wow, yes. I can't so, believe that. No yeah, wonder my job job uh, <laughs> case manager is stressed out. Right, exactly. <laughs> and exactly. the turnover is 42% yes, of the... Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and that's why I see a new person every time I go in yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and so both parties have an idea of how to, how to reduce the workload of job service provider staff, but the LNP's idea is to reduce caseload size by switching uh, completely to a, to a digital platform. Now, um, there's a lot of issues with digital service provision in uh, in the social security sector. I mean, we should have learnt from the robo debt scandal that digital compliance can result in um, in mistakes. You know, when there's no human oversight, that can be deeply, deeply. Uh, Deeply punishing for oh, yeah. workers. I yeah, mean, the impact. It, it, it's been shown. I mean, the thing yeah. about it is, they they uh, these automated systems are making decisions that have these yeah. terrible effects on uh, people. And uh, p- parents' necks, for example, have been showing yeah. that uh, using uh, compliance using a, a digital platform uh, when there's glitches, they and and the system, the government, which is the service provider, should be the service provider. There's no accountability. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And one of our recommendations in working it out and what we continue to recommend is that um, if there is to be compliance, you know, it should be returned to the public sector. It shouldn't be carried out by private job service providers. But, yeah, Parents Next is the perfect um, example. Pa- Parents Next is, is more highly digitised than broader job actors. Mm. Um, I was at the Parents Next inquiry recently and, you know, witness after witness testified that they were not able to feed themselves or feed their kids after their payments were cut off because the website glitched or the app broke, failed to log their compliance, you know. And, and if the app or the website goes down on a Friday night and you can't call your provider until Monday morning, then you've got people living in fear and anxiety all weekend that their payments are going to be suspended um, because because the website's broken and the app's broken. So. Yeah, people are helpless against yeah, this yeah. digital r- regime. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, at least in the Parents Next program as it currently stands, um, parents are able to call, a, you know, a human provider um, mm. on the Monday morning. But the LNP's proposed change to Job Active would essentially see three streams. So you'd have enhanced services, which would be for long-term unemployed people, people who have um, extra needs, and they would stay with face-to-face support. There would be Digital Plus, which would be mostly digital, but would have access to -to face-to-face support. But most unemployed workers will be streamed into Digital First. Digital First is fully online self-servicing, no access to, you know, face-to-face support or a job service provider at all. If a, an unemployed worker in Digital First finds that they need extra support, all that's been promised but on the LNP platform is a contact centre. Now, that sounds awfully like these awful kind of privatised Centrelink call centres that yeah. no one can get through to anyway, um, just causing extra stress. And again, historically, streaming 
participants in Job Active has been woefully inaccurate. I mean, um, we heard lot, lots of evidence when we were putting together working it out of um, unemployed workers that needed extra support, you know, people who are homeless or people with refugee backgrounds that can't speak English being incorrectly streamed into Stream A, which is the stream that um, is supposed to need the least support. So, Isn't that bizarre? That's so bizarre. And then nobody yeah. is made ac- accountable for this. And mm. isn't it true that in this Senate inquiry that they actually found that something, I mean, devastating to think that 2,000 people killed themselves over the robo-debt arrangements, which yeah. were found in most cases to be incorrect. Yeah, so um, in, in the Senate inquiry, what, what, what we really pushed and what unemployed workers really pushed in their testimony um, was this 50% error rate. Um, so um, I think in the year 2016 to 2017, half of all payment suspensions uh, were overturned by Centrelink, uh, just found to have been completely incorrect. You know, uh, an unemployed worker had their payment cut through absolutely no fault of their own, and it was later overturned by Centrelink. Now, in July last year, uh, July, t- July last year, of course, um, Centrelink oversight was removed um, altogether. So now there's no oversight at all. There's no measuring of how many of these penalties are being being um, being imposed in error. Um, and yeah, you know, certainly that that takes an incredible toll on people that are already vulnerable, already living, you know, far below the poverty line because of the woeful rate of New Start at the moment, um, constantly living in fear that no matter what they do to comply with this system, um, it's possible that their payments will just be cut through no fault of their own. And a switch to digital really does nothing to alleviate that. Also, the failure of the government in its duty of care. Like these are, uh, there's fundamental issues that are being brought up here. Uh, I mean, we we've moved on to this discussion because this is the stage we're at. But in yeah. actual fact, fundamentally, the way the social security system has been corrupted, I would I would say, uh, into uh, a system that is punitive. Yeah. And all around uh, uh, deserving poor, or yeah. uh, or the non-deserving poor, rather than a, a social safety net, uh, yeah. where we're all part of the one community. I mean, it's yeah. been quite deliberate and quite devastating. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the um, unemployed workers that we interviewed for working it out put it best. I think he said, "You know, it's not an employment services system; it's a compliance system for Centrelink." It's just a set of, of boxes and rules that I have to comply to in order to, to receive my Social Security payment, which is keeping me alive. And this was why, uh, at, at the start of the, the report comparing the ALP platforms and the LNP platforms, I really wanted to make it clear that, you know, the elephant in the room is demand for labour, right? There's not enough jobs available for everyone who wants to work, point blank. So it doesn't matter how much you comply with Job Active if the job isn't there, then it isn't there. So unemployed people need services that support them into training or into education or into work or into, you know, whatever it is that they want to do, not services that punish them for struggling to comply with activities that do not and cannot increase the demand for labour. If there's 16 unemployed workers applying for every job, um, that's not fixed by any of this. So, yeah, the whole system, in my opinion, um, rests on that false premise and needs to be completely rebuilt. I think also the other another elephant uh, is that 
the privatization of the system means that yeah. these uh, companies the, that are uh, job providers, uh, like their main focus is making profit out of the whole yeah. thing. So that's obviously that they're not concerned with helping anybody find a job. They're just ultimately uh, making profit out of the system. So yeah, and in fact, the way that the system is set up, this disincentivizes providers to place people in secure work because yeah. if someone's in secure work then they lose those regular payments so within job active we've got this this horrible phenomenon of churn yes. where providers are just placing the same unemployed worker in a series of short-term placements because they get an equal payment for every single one of those placements so mm. if you put an unemployed worker in four six months, um, you know, short-term training activities over two years, then you get four equal payments versus placing them in long-term secure employment, then you only get one payment. So this is a big advantage to my mind of the ALP's platform over the LNP's platform is that the ALP has promised to restructure that payment, um, that payment incentive so that long-term employment generates um, a much higher uh, payment outcome for the job service provider than the short-term ones do. Um, but I completely agree with you that, again, that's tinkering around the edges and not dealing with the, the elephant in the room, which is that no one should be making money off um, off unemployed workers. Yeah, yeah, it's a bl- blurring of the lines between public service and uh, the concept and citizenry and uh, versus everybody being a consumer. In oh. fact, I went to a, a presentation around mental health where everybody in mental health is a consumer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, some of the language that's used is is yeah, really really dehumanizing. Well, even to the point where the the unemployed workers are commodities to the uh job service A lot of providers. money in poverty. We, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A lot of yeah. money. They call um, you know, job service providers use the phrase client over and over again, my yeah. client, my client which just implies, you know, a, a relationship that is commercial rather yeah. than supportive. Yeah. And, of course, it makes the people who are working at these places complicit yes. in this kind of bullying arrangement. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's a complicated one because we also, you know, interestingly, what also came out of the Senate inquiry was um, the, the, um, the, the fact that often the staff at the front line of these job service providers, you know, there's no minimum qualification, there's no standardised training, they're not trained um, in any special way to um, deal with vulnerable people or yeah. to navigate complex situations. They're not trained in any way to build relationships within the labor market. You know, they're, they're low paid. They have these huge caseloads. Um, and they are, yeah, you know, in, incredibly stressed and not um, not able to do the, the job that's required of them. And um, in fact, the client that they're talking to could be them. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And we, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. We, you know, yeah. we actually heard there was there was another uh, piece of evidence to working it out where an unemployed worker said that her provider, her case manager told her that she was applying for the same job that she was applying for. Yeah. That the that the unemployed worker was applying for. So, you know, yeah, there is there is um there's an issue with this fact that there's no standardized training um or minimum caseloads for job service provider staff. And that's why, you know, you see that 42% turnover rate, um, which just further punishes unemployed workers. So it's the whole system, you know, there needs to be a restoration of public service delivery. We need to move away from this 
full privatization of the system. There needs to be standardized training across the board for job service provider staff so that there's you know a minimum guarantee of, of care and, and training um, for unemployed workers. And we need to put a limit on caseload sizes as well so that um, uh, so that uh, providers aren't aren't supposed to just work through 150 people every week with only you know 10 minutes for each. And the other thing, of course, the other elephant in the room. Uh, well, there's plenty so of elephants, elephants. So many elephants. <laughs> not a herd of room. elephants. <laughs> <laughs> is is of course the actual new start payment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the new start payment hasn't changed in um, in 25 years. Yeah, um, just it had its year. anniversary. Mm. Yeah, yes, yeah, anniversary is coming up, and the Unemployed Workers Union is um, is holding a, a birthday party for it outside oh. Josh Frydenberg's office. So, would recommend that everyone heads along to that. Yes, um, can you tell us when that is, or how, where should um, we go to find that out? Let me. I would recommend uh, going to um, Jeremy Poxon's Twitter to find out. Um, I don't have the date in front of me okay. right now, yep. but you can certainly find it on the AUWU website or on their on their Twitter page. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so New Start is is far below the poverty line. It's it's unlivable, um, and it hasn't increased in 25 years. Even though obviously the cost of living has increased so much in 25 years, um, and uh, it is so low that it prevents people from being able to look for work. I mean, you need to have access to the internet or access to a mobile phone in order to comply with all of the things that Job Active needs you to comply with in order to apply for jobs. And with the rate of new starts so low, how can someone afford to pay an internet bill? How can someone afford to get the train or the bus to their nearest library to access the internet? How can someone afford to get to a job interview or... Um, you know, to, to buy a suit in advance of a job interview. All of these things that people who are not on New Start take for granted when they think of the, oh, you know, I'll just go out and get a job um, premise. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. not, not available. These things aren't accessible. Oh, and also people when people say, oh, why are these homeless people on the street? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, that, you know, there, there's a real um, lack of understanding, I think, amongst the general public and, and an attitude that's really deeply embedded in, in our society that, um, you know, people should be able to, to just get by pull somehow. Up. What is that saying about pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Boot Whatever yeah. the bootstraps are. I know. Or, uh, a, you know, if you have a go, you'll get a go. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. Like, it makes no sense at all. No, it doesn't. And it's not factual, you know. It's just, um, it's just another kind of spun slogan that um, that conservatives like to like to put around. But... Labor has committed to reviewing the rate of New Start if they're elected. Which is a um, step. It is a step, exactly. You baby know, steps. Think, um, it is, it is, yeah, it is, it is a very baby step. I mean, I always kind of try and think incremental change is, is better than no change, you know. But, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it seems, you know, it seems promising, um, certainly at least, that Labor's promised to, to, I think the language that they've said is review the amount by which it will be raised. So there does seem to be um, some kind of promise in there that it's going to be raised. The question is, is just the amount. Um, it's really about them not wanting to scare the horses mm. before the election, I should say. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, they, the ALP love the reviews, don't they? They mm. do reviews yeah. into everything. The other thing they've promised to review is work for the doll. Yeah. Yeah, and that's Which, another anniversary that's coming up as well—the first death oh, 
Uh, yes, I think we're coming up to three years now since yeah. um, since Josh Park Singh died on a what for the doll site. Yeah. Um, so yeah, a lot. Of I can't even I can't even believe that mm. people how bad work for the doll is. I mean, it's yeah. not covered by OH and S. Uh, it's people have no. It's like slavery. It is. It is. I mean, if the if the jobs are there to be done, then, then people pay them. Should be yeah. employed doing mm-hmm. them. I mean, it's it's a real um, slap you know, in the a face. Real moral stain on on Australia. I think that that this program is allowed to continue. Multiple um, independent audits have found that the majority of work for the doll sites are unsafe. We're talking 500 injuries a year on work for the doll sites. And, and people um, have no cover. Yeah. And, yeah. The poorest people in yeah. society have they get a physical injury to doing something that they had to they were forced to do and they have no medical cover. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, it's shocking. And then of course, yeah, the death of, of an eighteen year old boy, which yeah. is horrifying and um you know, as horrifying as the death itself is the fact that it didn't seem to change uh, no. many people's um, opinions of this program, um, but there has been a lot of advocacy, a lot of um, a lot of lobbying. You know, um, unemployed workers have have got themselves to Senate inquiries to testify. They've organised, and I think we are starting to see change in this space. You know, as I said um, earlier, it's promising that not just the ALP but even the LNP feels that they have to announce an election platform on this issue. Um, so all of the major parties have have at least. Um, promise to you know reform or change the system in some way um, to my mind um, uh, there are platforms that are clearly better than other platforms so you know we'll see what happens after the election thanks for talking to us this morning abigail thank you so much for having me my pleasure <laughs> that's good that's one good. one two three four a week Bricky Team Lister, when the workers to whom he has devoted his life must be counting the days until they hopefully enjoy the benefits of a socialist government and the firm resolve of its supremo and would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten ambition. Talk about unswerving conviction. Why? Last week when the ACTU argued industry super funds should use their economic clout to force caring employers to be even more caring employers, little Billy told them they had no right to bully poor caring employers. Celebrated by the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 headline, Shorten Ambition Slaps Down Union Super Bosses, rebuffs ACTU over industry fund wage push. And last week, when this report claimed the socialist emissions reduction policy would cost the economy trillions and the caring business class said it would destroy the economy as we know it and we simply can't afford to save the planet, little Billy said he would consider cheap international carbon permits, cheap offsets, really important environmental benefits like planting a tree in Java, and would also consider, like the government, counting the so-called reserve from the from True Blue Aussie beating its Kyoto target of increasing pollution, which we achieved by increasing pollution by less than we said we would. And this week, Little Billy said the living wage, which caring employers say will destroy the country as we know it, we simply can't afford for workers to live the living wage will be phased in over a period taking into account the capacity of uh, business to pay and the potential impact on unemployment inflation and the broader economy 
Am I wrong, or doesn't that sound a lot like what the caring employers always say? Oh, well, that's another one gone, and he hasn't even been, been elected yet. Oh, yes, the workers can't wait. Still, Big Supremo scuttled them more less than also displayed his resolve and conviction and principle in facing the same dilemma on beautiful, beautiful coal less than a year after baiting the destroy-the-economy socialists by waving a lump of the beautiful product in their face. But then last week, influenced by matters of principle like the polls, scuttled them said coal was off the agenda brackets, at least until after the election, and then the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party, led by Barnacle, said, no, 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 beautiful coal is not only on the agenda, but the public purse must finance new coal-fired power on behalf of the private sector to prove our commitment to market forces. And so Scuttle Them and the Hayseed and Sheepshit lot got together to reach a compromise. Scuttle Them saying no coal, Barnacle and the gang demanding coal, and so they'd reached a compromise, with Scuttle Them saying coal and Barnacle and the gang saying coal. That's the sort of firm resolve a nation needs in its leaders. On which, a few weeks ago, we mentioned Trevor St. Baker the Planet, one of the biggest coal-fired, power-caring business class contributors to society, who commented after a coal mine was rejected by the New South Wales Land and Environment Court on the grounds of its CO2 emissions and impact on the local Gloucester Valley community that this isn't the law as I know it. We commented that the law, as Trevor knows it, is that he can do what he bloody well likes. Imagine the Environment Court considering the environment in a judgment. Well, following Scuttle Them's gutsy compromise, surprise, surprise, Trevor's Vales Point Coal Power Station is on the shortlist for a $15 million upgrade financed by the public purse to reduce its emissions by 1.1%. 100,000 tonnes, according to Trev's managing director. 1.1%, 100,000 tonnes. We, we, we daren't calculate their total pollution, but the managing director was philosophical. Emissions abatement is emissions abatement. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Uh, then if you're so committed to emissions reduction, why, why don't you already, why haven't you already done it? Why doesn't the money come from you? After all, it doesn't matter where the money comes from. He looked at me as though I was as stupid as that judge who thought the Environment Court had something to do with the environment. Another coal baron, Peter Government Bond, caring business class people named Bond have a commendable criminal history, don't they, was assessed in the annual rich list at 450 million personal wealth. Well, Pete's Link Energy underground coal gasification plant in North Queensland was fined four and a half million last year for serious environmental damage and now has been charged again over toxic gas contaminating soil and groundwater between two 2007 and 2013 and unfortunately Link Energy went into liquidation along with the contaminated groundwater in 2016 and the liquidator successfully had a court rule it did not have to pay the fine because it didn't have the money. The liquidator should be hired to give a bit of advice to all those indigenous people jailed all over the country and dying in the cells for not being able to pay fines. Advise them to go into liquidation. 
Unfortunately, it seems poor Pete now won't be able to meet the multi-million cost of remediating the site, cleaning up his mess. Indeed, one of the new charges is he somehow forgot to come up with the deposit he was supposed to come up with under the permit conditions, which would go toward rehabilitation. And thankfully, this gives a role in the private sector to the state government, which will have to meet the costs. Whatever happened to your 450 mil, Pete? We caught him as he was climbing into his Lamborghini. Well, you might ask, he sighed. Oh, the pain of poverty. Donations would be appreciated. The new charges are laid under criminal law, so there's a chance, a very slight chance, that poor Pete might end up behind bars. Talk about kicking a man when he's down. Two one-notion heavies just happened to find themselves in the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, got on the source, and then just happened to find themselves in the company of some National Rifle Slaughter Association heavies and thought, while we're here, we might as well ask them for a few trillion dollars and offer to make True Blue Aussie a slaughterhouse as well. Although why drinking sauce would make them do that, I've got no idea. But their supremo, that appalling hoonsun, blamed the real source, Al Jazeera, for filming their meeting. Shoot the messenger. Although that appalling is questioning the Port Arthur Massacre official version, a conspiracy apparently, in which 35 people just decided to shoot themselves simultaneously. Then again, a number of government members reckon, nay aver, that that the evil Greens and evil socialists are more dangerous than that lot of crackpots and poor Scuttle them is torn between putting the crackpots last to win votes in non-crackpot country or not putting them last to win votes in crackpot company. As uh, one of these predecessors said, life wasn't meant to be easy. Barnacle summed it up beautifully and perspicaciously. How do you decide who is the craziest? There are so many of them. He gave his normal in-depth political analysis and it was pretty clear Barnacle wasn't including the one notion lot among the crazies, nor himself for that matter. Speaking of crazies, US of big supremo Donald Trample the poor acknowledged that Zion's invasion of and occupation of the Golan Heights in Syria made the Golan Heights part of Zion and we can now assume any country, particularly any country the US of knows is evil and full of the bad guys, which does not also recognise greater and ever-expanding Zion, will be charged under US of law and extradited and any country that refuses to arrest and extradite them will be charged under, well, uh, on it goes. And then Donald attacked Russia for interfering in Venezuela. No, no, I've got nothing more to say on that. What can we say? Now, definitely saying, definitely speaking his mind, our old mate True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group Supremo Innes wheeled the axe after an outrageous, well, offensive idea, according to Innes, from the Tertiary Education Union, which wants a socialist government to introduce a bargaining fee for non-union members when the union wins their improved pay and conditions. And we can be sure on this one as well, they can rely on little Billy's firm convictions and resolve and principle. But Innes says, says non-union members have a right to receive the product without having to pay for it. The proposal is an anathema to the notion of freedom of association, which has long been enshrined in true Blue Aussie law.
Freedom of choice about whether to join a union or not to join a union is a fundamental tenet of our democracy and a key right in the fair work, no longer work choices, just looks like it act. Unions should be required to attract members by the quality of their representation and services. So imagine how distressed Paulinus is at the treacherous actions of the National Union of Workers signing up the workforce at Chemist Warehouse of Profits. Just because Chemist Warehouse of Profits was able to provide jobs for its workers by paying them not a lot of money. But they have a job, a foot on the ladder of employment. And then those thankless workers going on strike. Worse, as the shelves emptied and couldn't be restocked, the company capitulated and gave in to these outrageous claims like much, much better wages and conditions and evil union rights. Any wonder Poirinus knows it's offensive and anathema to expect workers to join an evil union when joining a union can so hurt a caring employer. Now forced to provide its workers not just with a meaningful and exciting job, but wages. Finally, adopting Innes's logic that we have a right to receive the product but can't be forced to pay for it, I went to a few of his members' businesses and picked up the products I wanted but kept getting blocked at the door and told to pay. That's offensive. That's anathema, I argued. Ask Innes. I have a right not to pay. Sadly, listener, it, it didn't work out as I sit here writing this from the City Watch House. Good morning. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. March 16, the Sentani region of Jayapura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with devastations of the mountains. Also poor waste management polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Papua people need your help more than ever. Help us. Reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https chafforg project flood relief for West Papua. West Papuan people need you 
It's time to help and don't make them feel alone. Anyway, uh, we're going to finish off the program with a few of the answers to questions to the panel that uh, accompanied uh, Virginia Eubanks' talk last week. It was a talk that was put together by the, was auspiced by the Australian Unemployed Workers Union and uh, it was on at uh, the Trades Hall and uh, she gave her speech. She, she's written a book called Automating Inequality. If you can get your hands on it, it is worth it. Uh, and uh, there was some, uh, and we've just got enough time to play some of the answers to some of the questions on that night because people had a lot to say uh, because, of course, this is a really challenging time for uh, Australian society. The fabric of Australian society is being assaulted by uh, the misuse of uh, the internet, the fabulous new technologies. I'd like to get uh, maybe Virginia and Simone to maybe finish finish us off. Uh, Virginia, if you want to talk uh, first, what, listening to everything that's happened, if you have you know, a magic wand, if you had like a magic wand to, to you know, how would you uh, fix, the, fix the mess we're in? That's a, not a tiny question, right? Uh, and unfortunately, I don't own that magic wand, though. If anyone knows where to get one, please um, um, let me know. Um, but one thing that did uh, I really get raised for me um, listening to the really important work that, that you guys are doing, um, just one maybe corrective thought or something to keep in mind as well is um, if we allow the conversation to only take place in the realm of work, we're actually seeding ground already. Um, so... Um, work is crucial um, and um, needs to be central, but work does not work for everyone. And one of the things that I think is really important is um, to also address the sort of processes of cheapening care that are happening through these programs. So it's um, both from the front line of the workers who are being um, really barred from doing the job that most of them signed up to do and want to do, um, one would at least hope. Um, I spoke a lot to um, older caseworkers who had been around for 25 or 30 years um, and I asked them what their main concerns are, and their their main concern was that new workers did not know that this um, redefinition um, of their job away from meeting people in their trauma and providing them human support to becoming information processors and risk assessors, that that actually wasn't the job. Um, and they felt like the folks coming in did not understand that the job had been changed in order to produce a position that could be replaced by computers, right? Yeah. So I think part of the work is really demanding um, and, uh, and respecting the work of care, um, whether it is waged or unwaged work. Um, and so that's on both sides of that line, both 
um, respecting caseworkers as workers and as labor um, and as care workers um, and respecting the unwaged work that mostly women do um, for little or no money, um, but that is absolutely crucial to maintaining culture and society and family safety. Um, so if we're not talking about that, I think we're really missing a, a, an important um, part of, uh, of the puzzle because I think that these tools don't just um, you know, um, help us reproduce uh, a reserved army of the unemployed, though clearly they do, um, but they also allow us to cheapen um, the importance of human connection and, um, uh, and conversation and humanization. And so I just want to make sure we continue to center that in the work, because um, I think that's really important. Simone, your magic wand. Okay. I don't have a magic wand either. I agree with everything that you've said, Virginia. In the employment services world, we've seen an attrition of capability. We're seeing it happening again in the parents' next workforce as people who've signed up to do a job that they thought would help people are being required to do things that they think harm people. This has happened in the employment services through marketisation for the past 20 years. Um, it's closely linked to uh, the conditions of the contract that the employment services agencies um, sign up for. I um, have no rub shoulders, have met many people who work and run employment services agencies, and I can tell you that they didn't sign up for that either. So my thoughts around what we can do to change things um, and the position that I've been advocating in various places that I've been able to um, say anything is uh, that people like me and the people who run those agencies and everybody else who works in a civil society function or not-for-profit agency needs to stand up and say, we don't want to do this anymore. Um, rather than be sold out by their contracts. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why um, I now feel incumbent, it's incumbent upon me to create linkages between different agencies, which is um, what I do quite a lot of, um, between policy agencies, between academic agencies and between advocacy agencies to try and get us to work all on the same page um, and align our policy goals so that we can't be divided and conquered. Can I offer one little history? Yay. Just one little historical example of that to give us uh, hope and strength um, is uh, the moment that we saw what I think of as the digital poorhouse arise in the United States um, was actually much earlier than most people think. So I thought really when I started this work, it was maybe in the 90s when the welfare um, reforms came, maybe in the 80s when the technology became widely available. The reality has happened in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. And that should give us a really different picture of what it's supposed to do, what political problem it was meant to solve. And what was happening at that moment in the United States is there was um, a huge, active, and successful welfare rights movement 
that was pushing frontline caseworkers to find their souls. Um, and in 1968, um, because the welfare rights movement was doing things like organizing applicants to demand their rights, was writing guidebooks, like the guidebook that I just saw that you guys have, um, was sitting in and having to be dispersed by uh, police officers on horseback. Um, 8,000 frontline caseworkers in New York City walked out of their jobs not to protect their own employment contract, but to loosen regulations for applicants so it would become easier for them to access the resources they were entitled to and deserved. And the next year is when they started the, digiti the digitizing the process. And that's because that alliance is such an unsettling force was so possibly dangerous to the system as it was um, that that's when they started to take discretion away from caseworkers. So that's really hard work, but it's possible. It's happened before. It can happen again right now. Um, so from what I understand, one of the questions you are asking is about how can we go about causing any change here when politicians, uh, sorry, when the state is kind of crippled by uh, unaccountable uh, global forces. Um, now, that, this is a really interesting question because I, I used to kind of think along those lines, but I encountered uh, Professor Bill Mitchell's book, Reclaiming the State, who wrote with Thomas Farsi, and essentially that, that book makes the argument that it's a mistake for people on the left to think that the state has completely retreated, it's weak to globalist forces, it has no power. Uh, that's not quite true. Uh, with the advent of neoliberalism, it's a mistake to think the state retreated. The welfare state surely <laughs> certainly did retreat but not the state. When it comes to sort of the repressive apparatus, to use that old uh, phrase, when it comes to, you know, the, you know not just the police force, um, but when it comes to basically anything to do with uh, keeping data on sort of citizens and surveillance, that stuff surely hasn't uh, retreated at all. Um, and when it comes to the ability of the government to, uh, you know, when there's a crisis, to intervene to the economy to stabilise, you know, uh, economic crisis, that surely... That power hasn't been taken away. We saw that with the GFC. Um, if it wasn't for the, you know, the policies of uh, governments, you know, basically buying out the banks, we would have been in big trouble there. So I actually think there is a lot of power for states to cause, uh, to actually intervene and cause change, especially through a, a federal job guarantee where the government acts as an empl employer of last resort, offering jobs uh, to anyone who wants to work. Uh, you need pressure. You need pressure and you need education. Most people think that uh, your tax money funds the government, which is not true. That's not how the economy works. There's a fantastic theory called modern monetary theory, which isn't a brand new theory about how money works. It is just a description of how money works in a sovereign issuing government. And the idea actually does go back to good old Marx in Capital, uh, Volume 1. Um, he, knew, he understood that you know, money is something, if it's you know, created by a sovereign, and that they issued their own currency, uh, therefore the government can't actually run out of money. It has to basically manage inflation, so not to print too much money, uh, and therefore cause the, the, the currencies for circulation to lose its value. The aim of taxation is actually to delete currency out of the system so people's uh, purchasing power doesn't outweigh the, the, the flow of supply. Um, so I, that comes, for me, that comes from um, uh, radical educator Paulo Freire, um, who says education um, in neutral is education for the status quo. Um, and so when I think about um, how often we aim 
for building neutral or objective systems. Um, it seems to me like we're actually aiming for systems that quietly support this the status quo. So the, the metaphor I usually use when I'm talking to designers about this um, is like, say you're building a car um, and it's supposed to navigate uh, like a really um, uh, hilly uh, landscape. Um, like it's full of hills, it's full of twists and turns. Let's say it just looks like San Francisco, right? So you're going to build this car and you build it in neutral. You build it with no gears. Um, then you put it at the top of Telegraph Hill um, and you just sort of like start going. Um, you then uh, should not be surprised when the thing like hurdles to the bottom of the hill and bursts into flames. Um, the reality is we need to build equity gears into these tools from the beginning um, or they will subtly and often not so subtly amplify and automate the inequality that already exists in our landscape. So we have to build tools that can actually navigate the landscapes of inequality we currently live on. And those tools can't be neutral. You, uh, what's the, uh, the, the book? Um, you can't be neutral on a moving train, right? Like, you can't build those tools in neutral. You have to build them with equity gears that um, actually represent uh, the, the best of our values. So not just efficiency, not just cost savings, but things like dignity and self-determination and due process um, and care, um, that all of equity, um, that all of those things need to be built in um, on purpose from the very beginning. So I was specifically writing about um, public um, systems um, for, for a specific reason, which is the solutions um, that we tend to come up with tend to assume that people are consumers of these systems, like they choose to engage with the systems or not. So the, the solutions are like opt-in, opt-out, or like basically read the fucking manual. Like, it, it, like you read the thing, and if you don't like it, you don't use it. Like don't use Facebook um, if you don't like it. And um, I thought that was really limiting our imagination around what the solutions are. Um, so in all of the cases that I look at, um, it's really hard to say that people are truly voluntarily engaging with these systems. And so it allowed me to talk about these systems as systems of social control and not just systems of commercial exploitation. And I feel like that opens up really different conversations. Which is, but to your question, like absolutely these things are coming together in really important ways. So the 2019 uh, Trump administration budget says that they're going to save $189 billion over the next 10 years by basically um, using the tools that they have innovated um, in programs where they're directed against poor and working people on middle-class entitlement programs like disability, social security, um, and unemployment. Um, and that will be done by using this increased in these increased digital tools, but also by counting on private data um, as part of the, the solution. So clearly, the goal is for there to be traffic across these systems, both the private and the public systems. And, and clearly, it, it offers an opportunity to produce wealth. Um, from the data as well, because once you open up that link between public and private, you can also sell data, public data, to the to, to um, private data collectors as well. So there's a lot to pay attention to around there. It's just not something I do. There you go.
they're coming for them as well. Mm. <laughs> Pretty scary stuff. Anyway, uh, a lot of uh, some optimism in there as well because people are fighting back. Yes. Uh, Solidarity Breakfast has come to its end this morning. Can we- I quickly yep. just uh, say on this Thursday, April 4th, uh, from 5 to 11, there'll be a fundraiser um, related to what's happening in West Papua. Uh, so it's at um, Belgium Avenue uh, in Richmond called the Screaming Water and there'll be yeah people performing and, and um, an opportunity to, to give to the flood relief. So date and time again? Yeah, um, this Thursday, the 4th of April from 5. Great. Okay, well, you'll hear from us next week. We've been uh, covering the uh, uh, automation and... Uh, political uh, platform that is uh, being delivered to unemployed workers uh, this today. Uh, we And we also visited uh, Venezuela uh, with a report from Joe Montero, who is from the AM, the, uh, the Australian Media and Entertainment Alliance. Uh, we're cu- coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Uh, we're going to play another song from David Robix. This is for uh, Mr. Langton. First, you have to have a problem. That part isn't hard. The second step is everybody realizing they're like you. They're holding the same card. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. And everything can change. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.